morning, my name is Joe Hendricks, and we will be reading from Hebrews today, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, and chapter 4, 14 through 16. And those passages, passages can be found on pages 1002 and 1003 in the Pew Bible. That's Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, and 4, 14 to 16. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through, the death, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this is the word of the Lord. Okay. Hey, maybe with those uh, words and with what Joel shared in your mind, would you just bow your head with me for a second? Do you just kind of think about what you need when it comes to how you spend your day, whether you get paid for it or not? Where are you struggling? What's overwhelming? Where are you confused? What do you need? Just take a second, take a deep breath. Ask for God's help to speak to you to that place today. Jesus, thanks for hearing our prayers and thanks that you know what it's like to be us. This text says that you came into our world, took on flesh, and you know what it's like to live in this broken world. Just pray for comfort for my sisters and my brothers from that reality. That as they're naming this tension, it's not into a void or into um, just the air. It's to a God who lived and breathed and had blood and sweat and had a job and had customers and worked with his hands and had deadlines, felt overwhelmed at times, experienced a lack of resources at times, no doubt, who dealt with difficulty, who felt the complexity of being connected to other people and their work and all the things that we feel you, you know. So would you speak to my brothers and sisters this morning? Would you help? Would you comfort? Would you encourage? And would you put us in a place where it's good news that you came and it's good news that you redeemed? Would you just help us attach what we're feeling to that good news of the gospel, the good news of the Christian story? Help us make deep application to the places of work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, so we are um, week three of four in this series on work and vocation. 
What we've been essentially trying to do is attach the story of work or the meaning of work or an explanation of work to the larger Christian narrative, which in some ways is kind of cheating because you should do that for everything all of your life, for, for your sex life, for your parenting, for, for the ways you relate to people that are hard for you to deal with, for your fears, for, for things you're excited about. All of those you should attach to the Christian story, the story of God's good creation, that He made things in ways that are beautiful and led to flourishing. And then there's a brokenness that comes into the world through, through sin. And so things are not the way they're supposed to be. But God didn't leave us alone. He sent His Son Jesus into the world to come and redeem and rescue and take on all of our humanity and brokenness and die in our place in such a way that we could have forgiveness. And things could actually begin not just to be redeemed, but ultimately restored. And we look forward to one day when things are made new again, where things are finally put back together the way they're supposed to be. So that, that Christian story gives meaning to your work story. It gives perspective. It gives hope. It also gives some instruction and maybe even some correction, some, some rethinking about how we're imagining work. Because the Christian story of work is one of a God who is intricately involved. And He actually is the first worker. The first worker we see in the world, in the universe, is God Himself creating. He's the one who rests from His work. And then He invites humankind to come. He creates us and He welcomes us to contribute to the flourishing of the world. And so the first worker makes workers who then begin to believe a different story. A story not of flourishing and God's goodness and holiness and Him being the Creator and King of the universe, but a a story we looked at last week of distrust. That we should have more than we have. That God's not actually giving us what we really, really need deep down. And therefore, we should take matters into our own hands. And, and now we're kind of on our own. There's a promise in the story that we heard as a rival story of our first parents that, that this would lead to flourishing. This would make us happier. This would make us more whole. We would know more, experience more. We would even be like God. It was a, a God-like story that was told to our first parents that once they believed that and turned away from the one true king, everything began to collapse. Because of course, there is no other king. There's no other place to go for flourishing. And so we first look inward to ourselves and that doesn't actually work or hold. And so then we look to other things and they don't have the capacity. Our jobs, other relationships, successes, reputation, comfort, power, approval, none of that can actually hold or put back together what is broken. And so it leaves us in this place where there's this perpetual frustration. And the Christian story is a story of hope. Even in that story in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 that we looked at last week, there's this promise in the middle of all the frustration, all the frustration that's happening in the home and the frustration that's happening in the workplace, there's this promise that God was going to come and send one who was going to make everything right, who would actually defeat God's ancient enemy, this serpent who told this rival story of how we got here, what makes sense, what we most need. And that rival story that has cost us so much, Jesus came right into the middle of and began to show us the kingdom again. We've been in the book of Matthew before this series, and what we see so many times is Jesus doing miracles and casting out demons, and he's actually teaching about the kingdom. And, and one scholar said it's like he's reaching forward to the future kingdom and pulling back into our reality what the kingdom is supposed to be, what he actually promised to make new again. 
And so every miracle story, every teaching about the kingdom, every, every counter-narrative to the narrative that we hear in this world is a story of hope that actually there's a way to be saved and rescued apart from ourselves, apart from our jobs, apart from our relationships, that actually those things that we know can't hold our redemption, God's promising something bigger and more uh, lasting. And it's actually Himself. So, so the Christian story is that, that what fixes the world is God Himself. And then He'll ultimately restore and renew and in the new heavens and new earth we see that there will be work so an image of peace that swords are beaten into plowshares and into pruning hooks there'll be no more war but these war implements aren't made into sculptures they're made into harvest tools so we see even in the new heavens and new earth we'll return to the way God designed things because work inherently is good what you experience as frustrating is because of the fall and so today we just talk about how God actually came to redeem and reconcile. But I want you to hear at the very beginning that the Christian story of work is a story of hope. That actually back in Genesis chapter 3, we see a couple of places. This promised one to come and defeat the Satan, defeat the serpent. And then actually God reclothes them and makes garments for them. There's a sacrifice that actually covers them. Both of those are beautiful deposits and foreshadows of what Christ would ultimately come to do. And so I spent some time there because I wanted to say a couple things. Maybe you're unfamiliar with the Christian story. We've heard fragments of that. We actually have, have taken the Christian story and we've morphed it and evolved it and changed it and blended it with other things where there's some things that sound familiar like there is a God or, or the work is hard. There's things about that story that we carry into other stories, but the full understanding of redemption and restoration often is missing for us, at least in our day-to-day lives, when you think about what you're trying to do. Because you live by a certain story. We've said this a couple of times at our church. There's a story that explains where you come from, what's wrong with the world, how it will be fixed, what the ultimate goal of things is. And that story gives meaning and purpose to everything. So even to talk to an engineer or to a teacher or to somebody in middle management to talk about what what is the goal, what's the end, that has to shape the means. And so in that sense, to think about what is it God is ultimately doing shapes what you long for, what you're expecting, what what you grieve over. But but there are lots and lots and lots of rival stories. So so an evolutionary story that doesn't have God at all in there, that just is a chaos story of of accident tells something about power tells something about how we fix things as well it has a it has a narrative that explains how we got here and then it leads us into this place of wondering how do we actually fix it but it but it tells you just through this and continuing getting better continuing survival of the fittest what will get ourselves to a place where things are fixed reincarnation tells a story And it's not a story that dignifies workers. It's a story that says if you're in an oppressed class or if you have some sort of handicap or if things aren't the way they're supposed to be, it's because you did something in a previous life. So it's a a story of justice, so to speak, of explaining how we got here, not in ways of like longing or flourishing or God redeeming, but but of you having this law-based reaction and earning of what you did in a previous life. And so your best hope in this life is simply to do better so the next round you're in a different class system or caste system but it's a story explaining what what happens materialism tells a story socialism tells a story every ism 
tells a rival story. And I want to just take some time there because I think you have believed parts of these stories. All of them promise power and approval and safety and comfort and control. And yet they always, always, always come up short. And there's this unity in the Christian story because God's the one who created work. We actually say that it's good. And we've been using this phrase that there's not meant to be a divide between the secular and the sacred. That the the, the holy and the common are actually meant to go together. Which that's a claim about that Christian story, but that's kind of absurd in lots of other stories. And so if that struck you as odd, I, I understand. Because normally we live in a fragmented world that has borrowing from different stories what we like or need in that moment. And so when you actually believe in a, a different story about how we got here and what's wrong than the biblical story, you actually live fragmented lives that show up in places like you acting one way at work and one way at home and one way at church and one way with your mom and one way with your kids and one way with your neighbors and so you actually live this fragmented life because you're always scanning the horizon asking how do I save myself how do I protect myself how do I earn how do I get how do I comfort how do I soothe and that fragmented story actually probably a collage of lots of broken stories sets you up in a place not of wholeness where there's an integration between the sacred and the secular, but one where you actually live a fragmented life. So it's kind of a provocative statement that we've made that that in God's story, the work is meant to be sacred. It's all meant to be done in front of God. It's meant to be done in such a way that God is there and we're thinking about how this relates to His kingdom. There There is no purely secular or mundane work. All of it's designed to give God glory and reflect back His goodness in the world. But I just want to name, that's a provocative story. And you're like, no, that's what I learned in Sunday school. Right, that's a provocative story. That story of a God who actually lets us sit in a space where the mundane things that we do matter to Him. Because there's stories like in the ancient world where the gods only created people so they would work for them so they could live in opulence and luxury. So so you have to understand, in the ancient world, this story is not just like a nice Sunday school tale. It's a rival story of kingdoms that that explains what we're longing for. And, and, And think about opulence and comfort for the deities is very different than majesty and splendor and glory. But God created us to come alongside of Him. And actually, we talked in the first week, this word for work in Genesis chapter 2 can be translated service and also worship. So we're borrowing from that word, like this word work is also service, is also worship. It speaks to the wholeness of that. And it actually says they're to work and keep the ground. And and scholars would say that phrase, work and keep, when you find it together, it's always priestly work. It's always work that's done by the priest, which isn't to say all of us are priests in a way that all of us are kind of in full-time ministry but to say all of us have this job of representing the world to God and God to the world so the original creation was this sacred and secular brought together and then last week we just said man that's not how you experience things at all because you have to explain if that's such a great story why is it not like that why is work hard why are you frustrated why can't you find a job why did you retire without the resources that you need Why are you struggling with staying at home with your kids? If it's such a great story, why why is it so dang hard? And we just looked last week at the idea that it's hard because the rival story told us we should be God. 
we should take matters into our own hands. And we've been living out the implications of that for a really, really, really long time. So I simply want to ask you as we get started, like, what are the stories that you believe that shape how you think about work? And I want to just isolate work because of the series, but I think you could expand it to how you think about everything. What is the narrative? What is the story that's making sense of your life? That tells you what you should be about. That tells you what would make you lovable. That tells you what would make you safe. That tells you what would make you successful or, or admired. That tells you what you deserve. That tells you how you might fix what is broken. That tells you what you should long for and that you should desire. I just want to invite you this morning to ask, what are you looking to or what is the story that's shaping? And my hunch is, if you've grown up in church, you've been around it for a while, you've read the Bible, you have some parts of the Christian story kind of embedded or woven into other stories, and you have this kind of mutated, strange conglomeration, which might make sense of why you feel so fragmented. Why there's parts of your life you're like, yes, I get that and other parts are like, this isn't working, it's broken, I don't understand. It might be that there are rival stories, even in your own heart, that are at work. So, so this morning, we want to just ask, hey, this third movement in the Christian story of redemption, what did God do to actually redeem? And Hebrews tells us what he did was come into our world. So here's the big idea. The first worker sent his son into the world to work and to take on all the effects of our brokenness in His work, so that when He died on the cross, He could pay the penalty for all of that. All the sins, all the brokenness, all the fragments, all the things that actually harm us and harm others. God sent His Son into the world as a worker to redeem. Again, not just work, but that's what we're talking about. It, to redeem the whole world. But these two texts tell us God took this on Himself by becoming one of us. So far from sitting outside in a lab coat, understanding and measuring and evaluating our world, he came into our world, history tells us, as a carpenter, as a blue-collar worker, actually to an immigrant family. For a season as they were refugees in another country, his dad works in a blue-collar world as a carpenter, and he learns that trade for 30 years. So you have 30 years of this labor and work in almost utter obscurity versus three years of this public ministry. And I didn't do the math, but I wonder how that would translate to like your life. How much time you spend in like churchy things versus times outside of this building. I don't know if it's a tenth of the time or that's a tenth, right? Three and thirty. Yeah, a tenth of the time. I I don't know exactly what it would be, but at least the point is that Jesus came into our world not just in the synagogue. Not just in the holy places, but in the secular places, in the mundane places, which actually makes a ton of sense because in God's economy, in God's world, those are actually where God lives, what he's doing in the world, how he's bringing about flourishing, and there is no divide between those things. So, so the incarnation is what this text is about, that God redeemed the world by stepping into the world and taking on our flesh. I want to just walk through three points, kind of how did God do that? What's the effect of him doing that? And how we should respond to that. Just real simply. So look with me in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 14. It's on page 1002. We'll flip back and forth to Genesis 2 and 3 as well, but but we'll start here in Hebrews chapter 2. He says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, 
he himself partook of the same things. So what did Jesus do? He actually partook. He took on the way that we lived. And it's this earthy flesh and blood thing. He even goes on to say it's not angels that he helps. It's not the spiritual beings that he helps. It's actually something that's very, very earthly. He, he came into our world and he partook. The incarnation says he took it on himself. He did that, that, that through the death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. The author of Hebrews is laboring to say he took on all of our humanity and he became like us in every single way, even in our work. In the places where we struggle to actually live our day-to-day lives and works, he took that part on so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So he's able to take on this temptation. And we jump to chapter 4 and we see there that this temptation he took on, it says in verse 15, was in every single way. He came as one like us in every respect and has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. So he partook, he took it on, he was made like us in every way. He stepped into our world and absorbed the human life and lived the life that you actually live. In the categories, right? So you go, he didn't have the internet, the stuff that, that Joel's talking about. Of course, as the God of the universe who knows the beginning to the end, he would not be at all confused with the words that Joel's using. But, but in the first century, that's not that pressure. He's not wondering, how do I get my email to work? He's not wondering that question. But categorically, what's going on in your work, he understands. And he understands the frustration of it. Again, not with a lab coat on, but in a carpenter's shop, he comes into our world and takes it on, which gives dignity to your work. This text says it gives sympathy to your work. That he sees you and understands what's going on. The way God came to redeem work was to come and do work. And to take all of the effects of that onto himself in ways that actually when he died on the cross it says he's able to actually redeem it. So so what did he do? He came and lived our lives in an incarnation way in flesh is what that word means to actually redeem it. So, So why did he do that? This text gives us four things that happened or four reasons why jump back up with me in verse 14 of chapter 2 in hebrews since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that right we're going to see a ton of so that's and becauses and therefores and twos he did that so that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death that is the devil and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery The first thing that Jesus did as he partook of our flesh, as he took it all on, was he came actually, died in our place in such a way to defeat the one who first told us this rival story. This first rival work and world story, the devil. He says he came that he, through his death, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So we go back to Genesis 3 in our mind, this lie that was told to our first parents about what would actually make them powerful and good and whole and satisfied and fulfill all of their longings. Jesus died, this text says, took on our flesh so he could stand in our first parents' place and in our place to defeat the power of devil and his lies. 
the lies of this garden story that God's untrustworthy, you're on your own, you should take matters into your own hands. So he destroys the power of the devil by taking on our flesh and dying in our place. And it doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just defeat the evil one. He actually delivers, as it says in verse 15, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He came to defeat our ancient enemy and he came to actually set captives free. Because when we believe this rival story, this lie about the world and work, everything broke. We were promised freedom and liberation and power. We were promised actually to be unshackled from the effects of God's rule and reign. And instead what happened was we became slaves to sin. So instead of freedom, do you remember how the story goes? That says they were created perfect in God's image. He set them out to work. It says that they were naked and not ashamed in the garden, which everybody giggles a little bit. But can you just imagine that? They're fully exposed, fully whole, not feeling any shame at all. Next line is the ancient enemy comes and begins to lie to them. They believe this lie. And the first thing the text says is their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked, which is shame. They were naked and had no shame. And now because of this lie, because they took matters into their own hands, shame enters into the world. So you have shame and then immediately they go and hide, it says. So you have shame and you have hiding And then God comes for them and asks where they are, and they say, we hid because we were afraid. So it went from this perfect, flourishing garden where there was no separation between the sacred and the secular to shame and hiding and fear. And then as God asks them to give an account, they begin to blame, and Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. So you have shame, you have hiding, you have fear, and you have blame. Hey, let me just ask you to take stock at your work. What are the struggles? Is it not in like building identity? Trying to cover our own selves? Dealing with our inadequacies? The rivalries and the competition and the way that people actually scrap to get to the top of the pile? Isn't there something about that that's rooted in a shame-based desire to cover ourselves with a powerful identity? With an attractive identity? with, with a, an identity that should be admired and respected. And isn't there a ton of hiding? Isn't there cutting of corners and not being fully honest and withholding information from clients and not giving them exactly where you are? And someone asks how it's going and you, you kind of tell the big parts of the truth, but not, not all of that. And aren't you constantly wondering if people are keeping secrets from you and not telling you where you are and you're not sure if you can trust your boss because of what he actually says to somebody else and that whole conference room when you heard that thing and then the whole gossipy deal, that whole thing of hiding shapes so much. And then just the pervasive fear, the insecurity, right? So then it's kind of insecurity that happens from inflation, but also just from an unstable identity at work. Asking work to give me what it could never provide actually sets me up to be deeply afraid. And then of course there is this blame. Whose fault is this? Well, it's the guy below you. It's the guy beneath you. It's the one in diapers that won't get their act together. It's, it's all the people around you, right? That's where you go in your mind to deal with and to clothe yourself in work. So, so the slavery that happened that Jesus came to emancipate us from is something we've rehearsed for a really, really, really long time. Shame marks our world. Hiding marks our world. 
Fear marks our world, and blame marks our world. And this text says Jesus came into our world, took on all of what it meant to be human, so that means he lived into those realities in that carpenter shop. He had clients, he had deadlines, he had pressures. There were places where he wasn't sure how he was going to make it. There was scarcity experience. And I just kind of let my mind go down some roads of like, people that would lie. They, they would get a great table and then say it came broken and he'd have to fix it like as if anybody would ever lie about the warranties that they've ever received from products, right? So Jesus would have felt the pressure of somebody trying to scam in that space. He would have felt the physical weight. He would have felt the physical pressure, the sweat and labor of living in a world that's broken. He felt all of that. And instead of shame, he had a secure identity from his father. Instead of hiding, he lived fully in the light with God. Instead of fear, he didn't actually push things on other people. He absorbed and bring a, a sense of calm. And instead of blame, he actually brought forgiveness. He, he actually engaged the broken places of our world. And this text says he did it to deliver us from the slavery. This is a lifelong project. It's the kind of thing that actually once you've been emancipated, it still takes a long, long time. One of the most damaging effects of trauma or abuse is the lingering lies you hear for so long about who you are, what you deserve, what your value is. So if you've been in an abusive relationship, you've heard lies for a long time. It takes a long time to untangle those in your heart. And friends, sin is an abusive relationship. It's an unrelenting taskmaster. It it enslaves us. And so Jesus came to deliver us from the fear of death so we could actually step away from a lifelong of slavery. We were subject to a lifelong of slavery. These patterns that we learned for so long, because there are passive and aggressive versions of shame and hiding and fear and blame that we live into. One of the things I'm so excited about this fall, when when we gather with our men, we're going to read this book called Rare Leadership that is an acronym for several things, but it gives us permission to talk about the drivers in our heart that make us reflexively act out of fear either in fight or flight or, you know, freeze or fawn or whatever F word you want to use, right? All those reactions to things that just are overwhelming to stop and go, oh, I learned that somewhere. Growing up in a world that told me this ancient lie, this story that I had to make myself valuable, that lie actually now shapes me in ways that have brought about so much pain. So, so Jesus came into our world to d- destroy the power of the devil and to deliver us from slavery. These are like emancipation war words. Into the rival story, he didn't just come and say some things. He came and did something powerfully to actually bring about redemption. And the problem with most of our stories is they don't go deep enough to say what's actually really broken. They, they stay on the surface and say that either material things are what's wrong or having more material things is what will fix it. And the Christian story takes what's broken to a much, much deeper place into our hearts, into rebellion, even into sin. Which is why the third thing it says that he did is to actually then forgive us. Look in verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, which means he bore the wrath, to bear the wrath for the sins of the people. So the incarnation had to happen because only man should pay for his own sins. And only God had the power to actually forgive. So here comes the God-man, God himself taking on flesh 
to live this perfect life. And he is, did you catch that? This faithful high priest. What Adam was supposed to be back in the garden where there's no differentiation between the secular and sacred to work and to keep the garden as a priest. Here comes Jesus, the second Adam, to actually come and redo and restore and renew what was broken. And what was broken wasn't just on the surface. It wasn't just ideas. It wasn't just things that we had done. It was things inside of our hearts that the Scriptures say deserve the wrath of God. Hey, that's a harsh thing. But it's actually a really important thing for us to just come to terms with in the story. The Christian story is a deep, deep story. It's not a surface story. It's not a story that tells you if you just try harder and do better, you're probably going to be fine and you're going to make it. It's a story that says what's broken is so down deep inside of us that only God himself could fix it. And the sin runs so deep inside of us that the rebellion actually deserves the wrath of God. It wasn't just that we tried hard and came up short. We missed a deadline on a project. It's that actually there's something about us that's bent in distrust away from God. That's what all sin is rooted in. So Jesus came and took on our flesh, lived our life, died in our place to bear the wrath of all of that so that we can be forgiven and set free. So the Christian story is this hopeful story, even to stop and just spend some time on this strange word propitiation and just say, don't round off the edges. That means you deserve the wrath of God because of your sin. Man. To say that, though, lets you get down to the source issues of your soul of what actually needs to be redeemed and keep us from playing games on the surface to think if we just tried harder and did better or blamed somebody else or hid a little bit more or covered our shame some way or found some way to cope with our fear, then we could actually get through this life. To hear, no, 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 it's so deep that God himself had to come and actually die in our place. So he destroys the power of Satan. He delivers us from slavery. He bears the weight of our sin. And he does that, it says in verse 18, so that he can help us. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. All of this actually kind of finds its fruitful, nourishing expression in the fact that God is close to us and able to actually bring help in our time of need. So jump over to chapter 4. In Hebrews, he basically says the same thing. He says, Since then, we have a great high priest, verse 14, who has passed through the heavens. So now we have Jesus coming on, taking on flesh and blood in an earthly way, and he's passed through the heavens, right? He's both man and God. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's not who he is. He actually took on all of our weaknesses, and in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus came, took on our flesh to destroy our evil one, to deliver us, to bear the weight of our sin, and to help us. If he's real and this story is real, that means when you're at work and you're overwhelmed and you're in a jam and the pressures of the old way that you're so familiar with for shame and hiding and fear and blame, just feel loud and almost inescapable. In that place, this passage says God Himself is available. God Himself is there. The redemption wasn't just transactional. It actually brought about real help in our lives. And if we have a big gospel that understands the weight of what Christ actually saved us from, and we don't reduce it down simply to forgiving your sins so you can go to heaven when you die and kind of clearing your ledger, if it's actually about renewal and restoration 
and flourishing and a new relationship with God that actually has been restored, if it's that big, then the kind of help he provides for you at work isn't just help to do evangelism. And it isn't just help to make more money to pay other people to go do evangelism. It's actually to sit in places where you feel overwhelmed and to feel like the presence of God is with you because Jesus promised, I'm going to be with you always, even to the ends of the earth, which surely would be on that Zoom call and in that conference room and at your home when you're by yourself in places where nobody else is around. In that space, he provides this kind of help. A big gospel lets you have a big salvation that goes past just the forgiveness of sins and makes us think about redemption at work not just simply in terms of evangelism, which, please do evangelism. Your sisters and brothers at work have no hope apart from Christ. Please tell them the one true story over the rival stories they have heard that actually lead them to destruction. Would you please tell them about the God who actually came to rescue, that took on flesh, lived in their place, understands what it's like to be them, died in their place in such a way they can be forgiven and free. Please share the good news of the gospel. We say every week as we send you out to go proclaim hope. Go proclaim that hope. But it's more than just that. The gospel is a gospel of flourishing and a gospel of the kingdom that changes how we act and react. And you'll need God's help to live out the Sermon on the Mount at work. You'll need God's help to actually live out things like forgiving your enemies and letting people take advantage of you. To be in places where you rejoice at persecution, where where you're merciful and meek where you actually don't seek advantage, but you give it away, where you serve instead of cling to power, where you actually don't insist on material possessions being your security, but, but you look to treasure that won't spoil and fade. You, you will need God's help for that in the workplace, to discern, to, to endure, to have hope in the middle of that, and the chaos of all the rival stories that are so loud, the cacophony of all the rival stories are so loud in your workplace, you'll need the presence of Jesus. But this text says, because He came and took on flesh, He's able now to give you help in those places when you are being tempted. He was tempted in every way. So categorically, He knows what it's like to be you. You can ask for His help. So so why did He do this? Why did He take on the, the flesh and step into our world to destroy the ancient evil one who lied to us? to deliver us from the slavery we've been living into, to forgive us of our sins and bear the weight of our sin, and to help us. So finally, as we close, then how should you respond? Look in chapter 4, verse 16 of Hebrews. It tells us, here it is. What do you do with all this? It says, let us then. So the text just tells us, hey, how do you apply this? In light of all this, let us with confidence, which is quite a bit different than shame, because God is actually the one who's covering you, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy being the forgiveness of all the things that we have done. And grace not just being a free pass, but Titus 2 says the grace of God has appeared and it teaches us, it trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions in this world. So forgiveness and grace. A a new story to live by. The grace of the gospel is a story that says, I'm not trying to save myself. I'm not trying to actually care for myself. I'm not looking for comfort and approval and power and control and wealth and respect and admiration and position and promotion. It's not what's going to make me whole. Christ makes me whole. And that grace now then begins to change and to transform us in our time of need. 
The Christian story of work is a hopeful story because the first worker, the father, sent his son into the world to work so he could bear the weight of all of our brokenness so that when he died on the cross, he, he took on our flesh and blood so that he could partake of all of our humanity so when he died, he could forgive us. That is a beautiful work story. Next week, we'll talk about how do you live that out in the day-to-day in a restored sort of way. We'll solve all the mysteries and fix all the problems in 30 minutes to next week. But for this moment, would you just sit in the truth of the story that we celebrate in communion? We rehearse this story every week because you hear all these rival stories. This is not just tradition for us. This is a declaration of war. I realize I said offering is that too. Hey, we're just going to war everywhere because there's so many rival stories that are harming you. So the story of redemption is that Christ took on flesh, spilt his blood, died in your place to redeem everything, including your work. So Christians come and just bring what you need in the communion line. Be quiet, contemplative, pray, ask for God to speak to you, and rejoice as you taste the reminders of his broken body and shed blood. We'll tear a piece of the bread off and we dip it in the cup. There's service here in the front. There'll be a gluten-free station over to my right, your left, and some self-serve communion cups if that's more comfortable for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, would you hear there's hope? God loves you. He sent His Son into the world to actually save and redeem you. He wants to actually see you reconciled to Him. This is the good news of the Christian story. If you're not ready to receive that, you can just stay in your seat and pray. There's some prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray. But would you just maybe examine the story you're living by and ask God if this story about His incarnation and redemption is true to help you, to speak to you, to give you faith to actually believe it. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, stay in your seat. If you are, come and take communion and then we'll sing together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've come to do. Thank you for your redemption and your grace. Would you come now fill the room with like a sober rejoicing, a reminder of all the things that you came to do and that we hold in our hand with this little piece of bread that's been dipped into a cup. Would it speak a truer story over us and remind us of your redemption? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, come when you're ready, and then we'll sing.